Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. In order to set the mood for today's tale, we need to take you back in time to one of the weirder moments in television history. It might seem odd now, but there was a short period in the early 1990s when a mainstream network broadcast one of the darkest, strangest, and dare we say, more surreal shows to ever hit the airwaves. Of course, it's become a cult classic now, but then it was a phenomenon. There was a lady with a log. There were demonic possessions. There was a terrifying red room where the secrets could be unraveled if only their tellers could be understood. And there was a great mystery, a terrible one, hiding just underneath the surface of a seemingly placid town. If this is sounding familiar, well, you've seen an episode, or many episodes, of Twin Peaks. We want you to keep the mood of that series evoked in your mind today. Now, the plot isn't entirely the same, but there are echoes that will feel somewhat familiar to you. A quiet, close-knit town in the mountains. A blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who never came home. A chain of unexplainable events that reveal a dark history. But, unfortunately, the tales we're bringing you today, they aren't fictional. We wish they were. Because, strangers, this is not a light episode. Like the town of Twin Peaks, the city of Bennington, Vermont, seems to have more than its share of unhappy mystery. We begin with a very real incident that took place in 1946. Bennington is a quiet place, historic even. Per the Bennington City website, Bennington was chartered in 1749, making it the first town in Vermont. Today, it's known for its cozy community, mountainous landscape, and its proximity to the countryside. But back in 1946, it was probably less near the countryside and more the actual countryside itself. 
things were certainly more rural. But in any case, on December 1st, 1946, the quiet atmosphere was shattered. A student at Bennington College, 18-year-old Paula Jean Weldon, she disappeared. And there was a great mystery, a terrible one, hiding just underneath the surface of a seemingly placid town. And when we say disappeared, we don't mean the Agatha Christie, she shows back up later kind of vanishing. By the way, if you're not sure what that means, check out our episode on the author. We wish we could tell you that happened. The story would be much brighter. No, for Paula, we mean the walked into the woods and never came back kind of disappeared. The story of Paula's disappearance began on a Sunday afternoon. Before leaving her dormitory, Paula told her roommate that she was going for a hike. Per the Bennington Evening Banner, Paula left campus and walked on the side of the road before hitchhiking with a local contractor to Route 9. Now, it should go without saying that was a dangerous thing to do, but luckily the contractor, or so we're told, was a good sort. He later reported to authorities that before he dropped her off, Paula mentioned that she wanted to hike the Long Trail. The Long Trail is a well-known hiking trail that stretches 272 miles over the Green Mountains in Vermont. According to the Green Mountain Club, it also shares 100 miles with the Appalachian Trail in the southern part of the state. All of this to say, the Long Trail wasn't a terribly remote or difficult-to-reach place. In fact, Paula was spotted by multiple people along the entrance to the trail the day she vanished, which makes her disappearance all the more confounding. The Bennington Evening Banner wrote that a local man, one Mr. Whitman, remembered, quote, a girl in a red jacket with blonde hair who asked him the way to the long trail that Sunday afternoon. As he watched her red jacket, or parka, as some newspapers referred to it, disappearing into the woods, he had no idea that he would be one of the last confirmed people to see Paula Weldon that day. We say confirmed because numerous people reported seeing a blonde girl in a red parka and sneakers around the time that Paula disappeared. But those stories were vague and scattered not just across Vermont, but the whole Northeast. On December 3rd, the Bennington Evening Banner reported that a local taxi driver believed that he'd driven Paula to the local bus station on the day she disappeared, where she may have boarded a bus going out of state. And a different Bennington Evening Banner article published just three days later described a train conductor in New Haven, Connecticut, who saw a young woman matching Paula's description on board. The same day, yet another person, this time in Boston, said a girl who looked like Paula applied for a waitress position at her restaurant. Most chillingly, just four days after Paula disappeared, Another Bennington Evening Banner article reported that a woodsman on Glassenberry Mountain heard a woman screaming for several hours. Glassenberry is one of the mountains close to the long trail entrance Paula was last seen at. And although searchers thoroughly combed that area, they found nothing. But there was movement in the case because, at least at first, it seemed like every day a new witness came forward claiming to have seen the girl. But none of the sightings formed a clear picture, no connections that could explain where Paula had gone and why. 
In the beginning, Bennington College faculty members and search officials thought Paula may not have returned home because she'd suffered an accident in the woods and became confused. Perhaps a head injury and a bout of amnesia, which is an explanation we don't hear much these days. Yet, as the Bennington Evening Banner reported, temperatures in the area reached below freezing in the period after Paula's disappearance, and the situation began to look bleak. Clothed only in jeans, a parka, and sneakers, Paula wasn't dressed for that kind of weather. As the day stretched on, the search parties combing the mountains knew that they were now more likely to be on a retrieval mission, not a rescue one. But they didn't find anything. Even with air support and the help of hundreds of volunteers, there wasn't a single solitary sign of Paula. The truth was, officials couldn't explain the lack of a body. If Paula had died of natural or accidental causes, the official line of thinking was that she should have already been found. On December 5th, four days after Paula went missing, the Bennington Evening Banner published this headline, College Officials Fear Girl Dead and Body Concealed. What had started as a search for a lost hiker was rapidly turning into a murder mystery. So the police doubled down on any witnesses claiming to have seen Paula. Who had actually seen her? Could any of them have been involved in her disappearance? As it turned out, many of the initial sightings weren't actually Paula, but other blonde-haired, blue-eyed women. Take, for example, when the Bennington Evening Banner revealed that a model from New York with the unlikely name of Barbara Florida was mistaken for Paula Weldon as she walked toward the entrance of the Long Trail. Faced with dead ends and conflicting reports, searchers made little progress. On December 12th, 11 days after Paula disappeared, the banner reported that two Connecticut State Police detectives had arrived in town to aid in the search. Yet, even they made little headway in the case. Paula was gone, and no one could explain what had happened to her. Strangers, even 76 years later, we still don't know what happened to Paula Weldon. Per the Berkshire Eagle, Paula's story would become one of the most infamous disappearances in Vermont, a once-in-a-lifetime cold case. Except for one strange thing. Paula wasn't the first mysterious disappearance in Bennington, and she certainly wasn't the last. Paula was just one of many who vanished in an area known as the Bennington Triangle. Though when Paula disappeared in 1946, it hadn't been named that just yet. You see, beginning the previous year, in 1945, one person disappeared in Bennington every few years. Their cases were difficult, impossible even, to investigate. And these people always disappeared between the months of October and December. The Berkshire Eagle summarized the events with this headline, Bennington ponders the mystery of five missing in half decade. It all started with a 74-year-old woodsman named Mitty Rivers, who disappeared on November 12, 1945. Mitty was one of many hunters taking part in that year's deer season. Per the catamount, he was last seen in the area of his camp just a few hours before dark. 
Although passing hunters urged him to return to camp, he said he knew the country and was in no danger. A year later, the Bennington Evening Banner reported that search officials were still searching for some sign of him. A body, a trail, even just a torn piece of clothing, it seemed impossible that someone who knew the woods so intimately, who'd been working in them for 60 years, could just get lost. In an awful detail, the Bennington Evening Banner reported that most people thought that Mitty could have accidentally been shot by a fellow deer hunter and that his body had been hidden somewhere in the mountains. If he had been secreted away, officials hoped that the passing seasons would reveal something. So after a year had passed, they reopened Mitty's case. But before the second search could even conclude, Paula Weldon had disappeared. She was last seen on the same slope of Glassenberry Mountain that Mitty Rivers was hunting on. And strangers, you already know how the search for Paula went. It never ended. And three years later, another person would disappear. Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode, kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest? in this nowhere area. And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to be attacked by an alligator? Or what goes through one's mind as they're stranded in a snowstorm? What Was That Like is the podcast for you. Real people come on every episode to explain the unbelievable situations they've been through. Guests share how they really felt during their most surreal experiences. They tell us what they did the morning before an earthquake, how it feels to win The Price is Right, and all sorts of details that you'd never learn anywhere else. If you're interested in hearing disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, What Was That Like is the podcast you've been looking for. Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know that even the most unrealistic are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like wherever you get your podcasts. 
Per the Bennington Evening Banner, on December 1st, 1949, 68-year-old World War I veteran James E. Tedford was reported missing. James was a resident of the Vermont's Soldiers' Home. Although he didn't disappear into the woods like the others, his vanishing was no less perplexing. The day he disappeared, James was taking a bus from St. Albans to Bennington, about a three-hour trip by car, southbound. Apparently, James was making this trip to visit his wife. Another Banner article stated that, quote, a check of tickets verified that he'd made the trip as far as Burlington, which is only 31 minutes south into his journey. It's unclear whether James had boarded a second bus in Burlington or whether he made his way into town. But from there, no sign of the veteran could be found. Unlike the other cases, there weren't even leads to look into. The only clue we have is that James Tedford's friends at the soldier's home told authorities he'd said he would, quote, never return before leaving for Bennington. What could that mean? No one was able to unravel it. His case was never solved. And a year later, on October 12th, 1950, another person disappeared. This time, it was eight-year-old Paul Jepson. The Bennington Evening Banner reported that Paul was with his mother at the Bennington Town Dump. His parents were the caretakers of the pigs kept at the location. Mrs. Jepson was moving the pigs from one section of the property to another while Paul waited in the truck. Or, at least, he was supposed to be waiting in the truck. When Mrs. Jepson returned to the truck, she found an open door and an empty seat. Paul was gone. The Bennington Evening Banner article reported that the U.S. Coast Guard searched the forest by air while the state police searched the ground. Another Bennington Evening Banner article described the bloodhound that was brought in to search for Paul's tracks. Although the dog followed traces of Paul's scent, it couldn't locate the child. Searchers could only conclude that Paul wasn't in the dump at all or in the woods nearby. Shortly before the official search was ended, Paul's father was paraphrased in the North Adams transcript. He told reporters, quote, His son has always been intrigued by the mountains, and he may have wandered off to do a little exploring on his own. That may have been the case. No one could say for sure. Paul, too, was never found. And just 16 days after Paul disappeared, 53-year-old Frida Langer was reported missing, too. Per the North Adams transcript, Frida Langer was camping with her husband and cousin in Somerset. Somerset is to the northeast of Bennington on the other side of Glastonbury Mountain. The same mountain both Paula Weldon and Mitty Rivers disappeared on or around. The day she vanished, Frida was hiking with her cousin, and only a short distance away from their starting point, Frida tripped in a creek and soaked her clothes. So she started back to camp for a change while her cousin went ahead. But Frida was never seen again. At least, not alive. You see, unlike the other four disappearances in the Bennington Triangle, Frida Langer's case was eventually solved. But it wouldn't be until seven months later, on May 13th. The Brattleboro Reformer reported that two fishermen found her body almost three and a half miles away from where it had last been seen. Her cause of death? accidental drowning. It was thought that Frida, quote, 
fell into a landlocked pool of deep water and drowned the night she disappeared. But she wasn't found until the spring thaw caused the pool to overflow. As you can imagine, her family was both relieved and heartbroken. They finally knew what had happened to her. And when we found that article, Frida's case also made us reflect on all the other disappearances. Because if Frida was eventually located, then how could the four other people have simply vanished into thin air? Because it's clear that Bennington's town folk knew those woods. And come spring, they knew to be on the lookout for anything out of the ordinary, anything that the thaw might have uncovered. The area seems to have swallowed up four people whole. Beyond that, there was an eerie similarity across the cases. According to the Berkshire Eagle, every disappearance occurred in a six-mile radius around Bennington. Most of the people vanished on or near Glassenberry Mountain, and all of the people vanished between fall and winter. It was for this reason that nearly a decade later, an author dubbed the area the Bennington Triangle. That author was Joseph Citro. Per the Bennington Banner, he was a folklore enthusiast who wrote a book recounting Vermont's history and oral storytelling called Green Mountain Ghosts, Ghouls, and Unsolved Mysteries. As Citro wrote in his book, I call the site of these strange events the Bennington Triangle because of the unexplained disappearances, perhaps ten in all, that all began in the Glassenberry Mountain area in late 1945. Although Citro discusses several other disappearances in his book, we could only use newspaper archives to confirm the five we've discussed here. He collected a variety of explanations for the disappearances. One of our personal favorites was a Yankee Shangri-La, as Citro described it, a lost horizon into which people inadvertently step, never to be seen again. The other potential explanations were no less bizarre, UFOs, Bigfoot, and serial killers. Well, those in the obligatory mid-century Native American legends. Now, the area around Bennington, Vermont is Wabanaki Confederacy land. Although the Wabanaki people certainly have a wealth of stories about their homeland, it seems that Citro didn't do any actual research into these histories. All that's offered are broad references to the Wabanaki Confederacy allegedly avoiding Glassenberry Mountain due to some vague superstitions about what might lurk there. Not very enlightening. But John Citro also introduces one more historical tidbit, something that he did dive into in detail. It's the story of a ghost town named after the mountain so many disappeared on, Glassenberry. Apparently, the locals weren't able to make a go of it in the Bennington Triangle. Not permanently, anyway. The town of Glassenberry was apparently established in the area sometime in the mid-19th century. And according to the Burlington Free Press, although the town's prospects were hopeful at first, around 50 years later, it would be completely abandoned. Because, in 1898, a flood destroyed the town's railroad tracks, and those tracks were their very lifeline. The railway controlled the industry, and without them, there was no work. 
And so, strangers, every person in Glastonbury was forced out, leaving nothing but empty buildings to rot in the woods. There's no explanation as to why they didn't just rebuild. With such a thriving economy, it makes sense that they might have, but no. Within a few years, it must have been a spooky sight. A hidden, moldering town, tucked away in the forest like the residents had just disappeared. Today, there's little left of Glassenberry but stone foundations. That same Burlington Free Press article that detailed the city's decline stated that there's, quote, a pall that some residents in the area believe still hovers over Glassenberry's untillable earth. Perhaps it just feels unlucky, maybe even cursed. But a flood is a natural disaster. It can be explained. Unlike the disappearances that came a half century later, the truth is these vanishings are unexplainable. Despite decades of investigation, there's been no progress on four out of five of the disappearances that occurred between 1945 and 1950. And at some point, coincidences become too frequent to be random chance, or at least it can feel that way. Perhaps there's some explanation we simply can't see. At some point, the supernatural starts to feel more comfortable than the unknown. Even Twin Peaks, for all its strangeness, still answered the question, who killed Laura Palmer? Because people long to know that the truth is out there somewhere. So maybe people reach for Bigfoot, cursed land, or ancient myth to explain the Bennington Triangle. But whatever actually happened there, your guess is as good as ours. For now, all we can leave you with is our hope that the truth will be uncovered someday and with our warning. Next time you're traveling through Vermont, maybe stay clear of those woods around Bennington just to be safe. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers, One Strange Thing is independently produced. To support the show and hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There you'll get ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, blogs, and live streams, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes.